All right, let me start with a question. Um, how many people here have experienced anagnorisis? Anybody? Anagnorisis sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? Sounds like something you might need a cream to treat, right? Anagnorisis. <laughs> but actually, anagnorisis, and don't worry, there won't be a lot of words like this in this sermon, but it's the term used to describe a sudden relevation or relevation of a hidden identity or an important piece of information in classic and contemporary literature. So think of it like this. Spoiler alert, because this is a sudden revelation. That's what anagnorisis is. But I think there's been enough time passed here that I can get away with some of these. Yeah, you remember that moment uh, in the second Star Wars movie where uh, Luke finds out who his father really is? Okay, no, notice how I stayed away from a spoiler there. That's an anagnorisis moment right there. Or it's the second that the owl shows up at Four Pivot Drive with Harry Potter's invitation to Hogwarts. A new bit of information enters a story which changes the perception everyone has about everything else. Or it's Dr. Crow's startling realization at the end of The Sixth Sense. Do you remember that movie? It's the moment when what has seemed to be the normal way of things is forever changed. Anagnorisis. Now what if I told you that in order to find our way to a happy life that we all at some point will experience our own versions of anagnorisis, a moment when we discover for the first time that what we thought to be the way things are isn't the way they are at all. It's in these moments that the choices that we make can determine whether we become tired, angry, depressed people or vibrant, open, engaged people. And this sermon series is designed to help us be prepared to respond to anagnorisis moments by examining how we live our lives before and after these pivotal moments, what they communicate about who we are, and how they can lead us to a deeper connection with God. Does that sound interesting? Anagnorisis. All right, so today we're going to read a story from the Bible that contains one of these moments. In fact, we're going to get to see Jesus walk someone through one of these moments. Uh, so I think it can be particularly helpful for us today. Let's read the passage. This is uh, Mark chapter 10. And it says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false te testimony, you shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, 
No one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So in this passage, there's a person that in our telling here is, is referred to simply as a, a quote-unquote a man. And he's at the middle of what I'm calling an an anagnosis moment. Uh, Let me see, or let us see if we can understand what this shift is that he's going through. So we actually know a little bit more about this gentleman because this story was significant enough that it's actually told three times uh, in the four versions of the life of Jesus that you'll find in the Christian scripture. And each version gives some extra details along the way. Uh, In fact, when you put them all together, he's often referred to as the rich young ruler. Uh, And he has a lot going for him. So first of all, he's rich. Uh, He's done really well economically. In this passage, it says he has great wealth. Uh, And that's that's more than just being secure financially, but also in that culture during that day, being wealthy was considered a sign of being blessed by God. So he's got that going for him as well. Also, he has power and influence. So in Luke's version of this, he's referred to not just as a man, but as a ruler. Uh, In Matthew's version, he's uh, described as young, so he's got all his vim and vigor, and uh, he's probably better looking, right? We're better looking when we're young, right? So he's good-looking, young, rich, powerful, and virtuous. So if you notice in this passage, he says, I follow all these commands. So he's got that going for him, too, and he's also spiritual, So you see him here, and what's the question he's asking of Jesus? He's asking, how can I find eternal life? What is the key? What's the answer? How can I get that? So he's young, good-looking, rich, powerful, virtuous, spiritual, and miserable. Absolutely miserable. The first time we see him, he's on his knees in front of a stranger, begging for some sort of insight to take away whatever it is that's in him that feels terrible. Does that surprise you? Here we have someone who, if anyone in the Bible sort of has it all together, it's this guy. He has a very clear picture of how life works, what it takes to be happy, what it takes to be fulfilled, and he's doing everything right. And that's his first difference-making moment. The moment of anagnosis, I knew I'd mess it up at least once, anagnosis for him is that he's miserable. I think what we see here is a young person who is doing what we're going to call in this series a survival dance. What is a survival dance? A survival dance is the best that we can do. This is a dance that we do basically to tell ourselves that we're okay, that we're worthwhile, that we have value. This is how we build our lives. This is how we build a sense of security. It's our jobs. It's our relationships. It's our power. It's our fame. It's our religion. World, this is who I am. This is the best I can do. This is the best I can offer. And the survival dance isn't I'm not totally down on it. I know I'm going to talk about another way to live, but actually it's a really important part of human development to sort of 
stake your claim about who you are, to build things into your life, to say, this is what I'm about, and to try and work towards those things. That's all healthy. It's all a process of growing up and maturing and becoming an adult, becoming independent. It's all great, but here's the thing. The survival dance is limited. Not bad, just limited. It's a good thing because it keeps us alive, but not necessarily happy. You see the difference? Notice that the young man in our story is miserable, even though he is, is as together as anyone you will ever meet. But the story here is that the survival dance cannot meet our deepest needs. What can? Well, what I'm going to suggest to you during this, today and during this series is that what we're looking for is more of a sacred dance. A sacred dance is finding our true self in God. Now, we're going to pack that over four weeks. But I think that this is what the young man here is looking for. And this is what I think Jesus is pointing him to. But he can't quite join in this kind of dance because it's not easy. He doesn't quite understand what Jesus is inviting him to. So what is he missing? Well, to join into this sacred dance, I want us to consider three things that would be really helpful to understand. And the first is this, that our best, that our very best is not the same thing as who we are. Our very best is not who we are. And this, I think, is where Jesus starts with this young ruler. The young ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I don't think Jesus' main point here, or the point actually he's trying to make at all, is that he isn't good. <laughs> I don't think that's it. Rather, I think Jesus is taking issue with the young man's assumptions about good and bad. It's as if Jesus has a bone to pick with some very basic assumptions and perspectives that the young man has about the way the world works. The young man is trying desperately to put it all together, to be a good person. He's trying to build something from the outside in, thinking that if he checks all of the boxes all around him, if he can check everyone, that that will in turn tell his heart or his soul or his essence that he's worthwhile. You see him doing that? I've done all these. I've done all these. I've done all these things. And what Jesus is doing by posing this question back to him is questioning this approach. And to show him this, what Jesus does, and you'll find if you read the stories of Jesus, he does this a lot. Jesus often asks, like, acts like a really good coach or a really good counselor. He asks questions to get people thinking so they can make discoveries for themselves. And so Jesus, Jesus asks him some questions. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the young man re- replied, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I've checked the boxes. Jesus, please, please, Give me the box that I'm missing. Show me what that is, and I'll do that too. And it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. 
Now, do you see what Jesus just did there? Instead of giving the young man another box to check, he takes one of the boxes away. You see that? Part of the young man's identity is that he's wealthy. He has that box checked really well. Now, Jesus takes him through an exercise. Imagine that that check goes away. Your money's gone. You're poor. And you can't take it. The thought that one of the things that he's built up to define himself could disappear is more than he can bear. And the passage says that he was sad. The word that is used there actually means grieved. It's used another place in the scripture. It's used to describe Jesus at one point. It's used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane the night before he goes to the cross. And it's at the moment that he is looking forward. He sees it coming. He knows the cross is coming. And as he imagines what the cross will be like, and specifically for the first time in his life being separated from his Father in heaven, it says he was grieved. He, his body begins to go into shock. It says he, beads of sweat like blood began to drop from his forehead. This is the type of grieving that our young man feels in this story. Like whatever that wealth connects so closely to his sense of essence and identity and purpose and being that the thought of losing that checked box sends his body into shock. It says he goes away grieved. But what he doesn't realize, and I think what Jesus is trying to get him to see, is that his money and all of the boxes that he's checked, those aren't actually him. They're what he presents to the world. They're his argument to everyone else for why he's worthwhile. They're what he's hoping in, but they're not him. And he's built them up to survive. But they aren't his true self. And they don't affirm his true self. And that's why he's miserable. He'll never have enough money to, for that money to talk to his soul and say you're worthwhile. All that money can say is, well, as long as you have me, you can survive. But if I went away... Our best, our best is not who we are. Our best is not a bad thing. Our best is very important, but it's not who we are. And what we build is what we build. It's not us. And so Jesus gives him an invitation. So right after he goes through this little exercise with him, he says, then come follow me. Follow me. But the, the essence here is let it go. <laughs> To follow someone, you have to leave something. To go one direction, you can't go another. And he's saying, let it go. He put his hope in what he built for himself, but Jesus was now trying to get him to realize that he had to let go of things in order to find himself. And this was a pivotal moment of anagnosis for him. The process of growth of starting a further journey is actually letting go. 
And we'll have more to say about this in a minute. But there's a second thing I want us to notice about the sacred dance and what we can, what's important that we understand, and that's this. Our best also does not connect us to God. So there's a second exercise that Jesus does with this young guy. He says, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack. Now, I don't know if you recognize from that list there, um, maybe you have the background too, maybe you don't, but that, that's a, a, almost a complete list of the Ten Commandments that Jesus spouts out there. Do you notice that? Uh, don't lie, don't steal, honor your father and mother. But not all of the commandments. And scholars who study the Ten Commandments say you can pretty much divide them almost in half. Half of the commandments are about how we love our neighbor, and the other half, roughly, are about how we relate to God. And Jesus here has conveniently left out all of the commandments about loving God. They're all the outward, how to love our neighbor commands. And if you think about that, I think the imagery here is very striking. The young man had been finding his identity in the things he could do, even the things he could do for God, the religious things, but not in God. And the connection that makes all the difference to us is this type of connection to something bigger, greater, higher power, to the universe. And specifically, from the point of view of Jesus, to God. Through interaction with the divine, through interaction with God. And so Jesus offers him a second invitation. And this invitation is follow. Follow me. If there's a further journey, if this is an anagnorosis moment here, Jesus is saying it's an opportunity to travel with him, to do life with him, to connect with him, to learn from him, to follow him. That's the way into this further journey where we discover who we really are. That's the sacred dance. But here's the thing. Dance lessons hurt. You know, it's been a long time. Uh, but in a former life, <laughs> I was in a lot of plays, and some of them are musicals. And one summer, I was cast in one show in particular. It's a show that's called, a, it's a show, A Chorus Line, if any of you have heard of it. For a long time, it was the longest-running show on Broadway. Um, and the thing about the show is it's probably like 95% dancing. It's non-stop dancing with a little dialogue here and there, okay? Some interludes where no one's dancing. But it's a chorus line about a chorus line, and chorus line people dance. So I have never been, and I still am not, a professional dancer. That's not who I am. I don't claim to be. But I was cast in the show, so I had to somehow pull it off. And we rehearsed for about a month from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. in 95-degree heat in southern Illinois 
where it's very muggy, hot. And then in the evening, we'd do this other show we'd already learned, and then we'd come back the next day and we'd do it all over again. So eight hours a day, I was dancing. And I'm not a dancer. I was sore. Very sore. And at one point, I did this, had to do this one dance move. It was da, 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 da. And on the da, I had to kick and put my foot down. And one time I kicked and put my foot down and broke a toe. And if you know the show, here's how it goes. Da, 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 kick, da. And then the one guy who doesn't dance in the show goes, again! Da, 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 da. Again! Da, 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 da. Like 10 times, seriously. On a broken toe. <laughs> it hurt. It wasn't comfortable. And why do I mention this? Well, moments of... <laughs> right, some people are wanting and. So... Moments of anagnorosis, and I didn't say that right, often come in the context of situations that hurt. The young man in this story is in pain. His life isn't working. He's in touch with that. He's feeling that. And into this, Jesus adds another bit of pain. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have. Give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then follow me. At this, the man's face fell, as if it hadn't already fallen. He went away grieved because he had great wealth. Now notice, it says right in the middle of that passage, Jesus loved him. He's trying to help him. He's not trying to hurt him. He's not trying to harm him, but he's trying to get him to wake up to what's happening in his life. Not just that he feels terrible, but why? Why would Jesus do this? He already feels bad. Why make it worse? And I think what Jesus knows and why he specifically pushed the young man this way is that we often don't pay attention to what needs to change in us until we experience some sort of failure or disappointment outside of us. So Richard Rohr wrote a book called Falling Up. It's big, or Falling Upward. It's a big inspiration for the series we're in right now. And he said this, we do, not want to embark, uh, we do not want to embark on a further journey if it feels like going down, especially after we put so much sound and fury into going up. And this is why this series is entitled Falling Up. The sacred dance, discovering who we really are, begins going down. The way up is down. So this thing, necessary pain, not pain without any meaning, but necessary pain then becomes a messenger bringing a letter to us that just like Harry Potter could enter a whole new world at Hogwarts that he'd never imagined, we too can go on that type of journey. But what's particularly challenging about this is that the pain usually comes when something from our survival dance breaks down. A relationship ends. Your career hits a setback. A financial crisis wipes you out. You don't have the perfect kids. You get everything that you want and discover you're still miserable. Something in that package that you've created, 
one of those boxes that you've checked that you use in many ways a healthy way to help define who you are, it starts to fall apart. The cracks start to show. And the question then is, will I put more and more of my energy into rebuilding that part of what I've created? Building it up, girding it up. More and more energy to try and keep it from crumbling to protect who I think that I am. Or will I let it go? Will I look to some higher power, to Jesus, to tell me who I really am apart from all of the things that I can do? Richard Bohr actually refers to this type of experience as the two halves of life. And the first half is defining who you are for yourself. And the second half, usually embarked on because of some sort of disappointment that we experience, is finding a new understanding of who you are that's apart from what you've created for yourself. And moving in a new direction hurts. More than that, it's scary. That's really scary. It can feel like your world is falling apart. You, you may need to grieve the old life. But it's also full of all sorts of promise and potential and deep reality. Jesus makes a promise here in this passage. And I'm rephrasing it in this term, that terms, that the dance is everything you've ever wanted, the sacred dance. He says, truly I tell you, no one is left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel. No one will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, what is Jesus laying out for his followers here? Is he really promising 100 fields per one field left behind? I don't think so. But I think he is promising 100 times the sense of security or peace or sense of well-being that one field can offer or one father can offer or one brother can offer. And this, I think, is what the rich young ruler was looking for all along. Here it is. He's got all these boxes checked. He's got this great resume. He's, he's, he's totally together. And Jesus is saying, if you can just let go of letting one of those boxes define you, the security you got from being wealthy, you'll experience 100 times that. If who you really are is actually affirmed, not what you've created for yourself. That's the bargain. That's the deal. Now, letting go of that box is painful and scary, but the other side of it is a hundredfold whatever you're getting from it. Whatever you're getting from it in terms of your sense of well-being. You know, I didn't particularly enjoy dancing eight hours a day, (laughs) but by the end, I was ripped. I got that out of it. I've never been in that good a shape in my whole life. It was like doing aerobics for eight hours a day. Becca's probably like, why didn't I know you then? <laughs> and I would have never in some ways known what, uh, what my body was capable of doing without that experience. And I found something true to who I was that my body was made to do that I wouldn't have found in another way. But at times it felt like my body was falling apart. 
and it felt more like falling down, and I probably had some literal times of actually falling down, but it was actually the way up. You know, for some of you, this is just something to log in your, in your databanks, because you're really early on whatever journey you're on, and you're in the process of setting up uh, sort of your survival dance, whether you would call it that or not. You're putting the things in place. Maybe you're going to school. Maybe you're in your first job. Maybe you just got married. Whatever. The, you're in the early stages, and it's really helpful developmentally to do the things that you're doing. I'm not saying stop. And those things are important things. And I'm not saying that when you let go of certain things that you can't like have a family or something. I just think the family you can embrace in a new way. Right? But I'm just saying log this in your database so that at some point if you hit a moment of major disappointment, major tragedy, whatever it might be, just remember somewhere along the way someone told you that's actually part of the journey. So that when you hit that moment, you don't think that even as certain things are falling apart, that it's all going to fall apart. That you can't get to the other side. That actually this isn't normal and part of it. Log it in your databanks. For others of you, you're in the middle of this sort of experience and it's like a crisis for you and you're feeling it and it feels like different boxes and different things or different plates that you're splitting there's you can't keep it all going it's starting to fall apart for you i just want to say jesus is right there with you and he wants to walk it through with you just like he was alongside the young man in the story whom he loved he can bring you through but it might feel like things are falling apart or like you're falling down. Sometimes the way up is down. He's there. And also just really, this can happen, and I've heard lots of these stories, in your life of faith as well. And if that's you, I've preached sermons on that. I won't get too far into it. But I will say that I've been invited to lead uh, another round of Faith Reimagined, this time on Penn's campus, starting tomorrow <laughs> and running for five weeks. 6.30 p.m., Christian Association, 118 South 37th Street. I think it's in your bulletin. And if that's you, um, come on over. Yes, it's on Penn's campus. If you're a Penn student, then hey, that might feel totally natural. But even if you're not, you can join us. Everyone will love to have you there. And for the rest of this series, let me just promise, we're going to look more and more closely at what it means to find our true self in Christ. Let's pray. So Jesus, I want to pray particularly for people here that have started to see some of those boxes crack open. They put their whole life into something and it just seems like either it's not paying off or it's actually falling apart. I just want to pray for you. And my prayer is take heart. My prayer for you is this is normal. This is actually part of the journey. And my prayer for you also is that by the grace of God, you would find ways not to put all of your energy into trying to put back together what you had before, but that you would have the grace to follow Jesus into a new understanding of who you are in your life. And Father, for the rest of us who aren't in that place right now, God, may our hearts be filled with gratitude because we've seen that process in our lives and we've seen you bring us through. 
Or may you just build in us a reserve so that when, when our day comes and we're facing some of the similar things, uh, we won't be completely surprised. And there'll be space in our minds and our hearts uh, to let you into that process and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.